Welcome to the Sound on Sound podcast. Hello and welcome to another Sound on Sound podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Paul White and with me is Technical Editor Hugh Rob-Jones. Hello there. This podcast runs alongside the December issue of the magazine, so we'll tell you a bit about what's in there if you haven't got a copy already. We'll also be looking at a few of your questions and concerns. But first of all, as usual, Hugh, what have you been working on over the last week or two that's of interest? Well, the last couple of weeks, I've actually been down in South Africa on a lecture tour with Prism Sound. We've been lecturing to the broadcasters down there and also to a lot of the educational colleges. And I've been giving lectures on things like microphone technology and digital clocking. Data compression was a topic that was of great interest to them. Um, And a couple of other bits and pieces like that. That was very good. Uh, But before that, I did a number of reviews for the magazine, including SE Electronics' new egg speakers, which they developed in partnership with Andy Munro, which were fantastic. Very impressive speakers. And that review will be in the next issue, I hope. What about you, Paul? What have you been up to? Well, aside from the usual reviews, I went to a college in uh, Cheltenham the other day and did a masterclass on remixing for the students. And I must say that the quality of the recordings and the songs that they produced was actually very, very good. And I was very happy to be able to make some improvements to impress the students. I mean, the, the big worry is you go there and you find that you can't actually improve on anything they've done. But that turned out to be a, a very eventful and useful day. And of course today we've just been to another college to answer Q&As for a a whole room full of students, which threw up some interesting questions, some of which we'll be exploring later in this podcast. The other thing I've been doing is retrofitting some of my guitars with Kinman's new P90 HX pickups. These are hum-free versions of the P90, but without throwing the P90 sound out of the window. Now this is particularly important in the recording studio because the extra windings on a P90 tend to make them very susceptible to hum. And I'm pleased to say that these Kinman pickups don't throw away any of the tone, but they make the thing very, very quiet, perfect for recording. So there'll be a brief review of that coming up in the near future. As usual, there's a lot of really excellent practical information in this month's Sound on Sound including an article called Steal the Feel, which is all about how to build tracks around sampled tunes. Now, you might think sampling is just a matter of finding a loop, slicing the front and the end of it, sticking it into a song, and trying to write some pieces to fit. But there are all kinds of problems, such as instruments in there being too loud or too quiet, phase problems when you try to add other sampled parts on top, and uh, changing the tempo to fit, or the length to fit. It's all in there. In fact, it's a fascinating piece. I learnt a few things myself there. We've also got uh, Mike Senior looking at how to build songs around samples, so it's a very much a build-it-around-samples kind of theme this time around. Though if you're into more mix esoterica, there's a look on how the Buggles recorded Video Killed the Radio Star. There, I've given it away now. Video did it. <laughs> and again, it's an intriguing piece of history. Technology was quite different back then, but Trevor was really pushing the boundaries. In Mixed Rescue this month, we figure out how to pack some much-needed punch into an interesting instrumental track. The Inside Track article is about Lil Wayne, and our Studio SOS feature this month is all about Olivia Broadfield's studio, and here she is to tell us how the day went. Hi, I'm Olivia Broadfield. I was lucky enough this summer to have Paul White and Hugh Rob-Johns come to my studio for a morning. They made such a huge difference to my sound and my monitoring with tiny adjustments, pulling the desk away from the wall, putting speakers on vibro pads, giving me some lovely acoustic treatment. It literally took a couple of hours to transform my box of a room from something where sound bounced around to something where I was getting a really great even sound. It just shows you that there's no limits anymore to what you can do in a home studio. So my thanks go out to Paul and to Hugh.
Now here's Sam to tell us what's going on in his section of the magazine in the December issue. What does the world need more of? Love? Peace? Food? Plug-in formats? Possibly not. Yet this month sees the launch of not one, but two new real-time plug-in formats, ARX and ARA. ARX is Avid's replacement for the ageing TDM and RTAS formats used by Pro Tools. It's something that needed to be done to support a new generation of DSP hardware, and from the user's point of view, it probably won't be very different from existing formats, although we'll find out for sure when we review Pro Tools 10. ARA, on the other hand, which stands for Audio Random Access, is a bit more unusual. The only host application that supports ARA at the moment is PreSonus's Studio One version 2. And the only plugin available in the ARA format is Celemony's Melodyne. But what ARA achieves is a level of integration between the two that is completely unprecedented. In effect, Melodyne functions exactly like one of Studio One's own editing windows. You select some audio, you hit Control M, and a Melodyne window opens within Studio One. If you've ever tried using Melodyne alongside a DAW before, you'll know exactly what a revolution that could be. It's the best feature about the new Studio One version 2, and there are a lot of new features in it. I review Studio One version 2 in full in the December issue of Sound on Sound, so to find out more, buy the magazine. And now to keep this podcast brief but useful, we're going to go straight into some reader questions. Okay, well, the first question comes from a Twitter fan, and it's from uh, at Subway Sounds, and he asks, will iOS apps kill modern synth manufacture? Well, I think this is a broader question. I mean, you can get synths as iOS apps, of course, but we've had software synths for the last decade or so, and the short answer is, I suppose, that they are making inroads into the hardware synth market, as they must, especially in studios. Probably less so in live performance, but certainly in the studio where you can get a piece of software that offers you 10 different synths and takes up no space, never gets chipped, and can be updated to improve it whenever there's a software upgrade, it's a bit of a no contest really, I'd say. Although it's true that things coming out for the iOS system seem to be a lot cheaper than their standard plug-in counterparts. Maybe it's because they're expecting more of a casual user to use these things. And on the iPhone, I guess not many people are going to be making a lot of serious music. So if it gets people more interested, that's a good thing. The iPad's different because, theoretically speaking, uh, that's powerful enough to do a bit of serious music recording. And we'll only get more powerful with every incarnation. So we may see a paradigm shift there. Yeah, and there's a lot of people developing third-party outboard equipment to go with the iPad, isn't there, to you know to use it as a bigger interface and to connect it with an audio interface as well to expand its possibilities generally. That's true, and even so, with the iPhone, you can get things where you can plug in your electric guitar or a microphone to make a better quality recording, but the iPad certainly seems to be the place to go for all the cool stuff at the moment. Yeah, I think it's going to be an interesting area to watch. And, of course, there's the, the Google side of things as well. I mean, those uh, tablets are coming along at leaps and bounds at the moment too, so we're going to have those two rival systems fighting it out, and that should hopefully keep the cost down too. Well, the cost's already pretty much down, but, yes, I see your point. OK, well, the next question comes from a Facebook fan, Kieran Lewis, and uh, he asks, I'm a new reader, and I was wondering if anyone knows of any decent music editing programmes that are available for the PC and aren't very expensive or ideally even free if possible. 
Well, I know you're not really into the PC side of things, so I guess I need to answer this one. Yes, would that be something like Audacity that we're talking about? Absolutely right. Yeah, I think probably Audacity is the best known one. Um, there are a lot, actually. I did a quick Google search before I came out here to do the podcast, and uh, I found over 25, 26 free audio editors of, of varying capabilities and descriptions. But Audacity, I think, hits the top of the list. It's certainly one of the most capable ones. And another one I found that looks really good is called WavePad, which you can find on nch.com.au it's an australian company that makes that uh, and they're both free and they're both very good what about for the mac though if you had a mac user are there any free audio editors for macs uh, there's rather less i mean you can get a copy of reaper very very cheaply it's almost free but i, d- I don't think there's very much stuff that's entirely free that i would recommend using mm. if something's worth using it's worth paying for i think One reader's phoned in and said, where can he get one of the very rare unsigned copies of Paul White's new book, The Producer's Manual? Well, the answer to that is you can buy the rare unsigned copy from Time and Space for no extra cost, or you can have the standard signed-by-hand issue, which you can get from the mail-order section of Sound on Sound. That would be a bit of a blatant plug there, then, would it? Well, I wouldn't like to say it was a blatant plug. Maybe it's just a kind of... Pluggy plug. (laughs) No, seriously, it's a good book. You've done well with that one. Excellent Christmas present, I think. Yes, it's certainly been well received and a lot of colleges are already putting it on their required reading list, which is good news. So I describe it as everything I know plus several things I don't. This is a question that came up during the college Q&A that we did today earlier on. And it is, what is jitter, clock jitter this is, and why does it matter? Well, clock jitter is the, uh, it's the timing variation in the sampling instance. Ideally, in, in a perfect system, every audio sample should be taken at a regular interval. So the timing between each sample has to be absolutely identical and, and rock solid. And that's obviously quite difficult to achieve. And if the samples are taken at slightly varying times, then that variation is called jitter. Effectively, then, you're sampling the signal at at slightly the wrong time, and so you're picking a slightly different amplitude that you would get uh, if you'd sampled it at the right time because the waveform's constantly changing. Yeah, it can affect both ends of the chain, actually. It can affect the A to D and the D to A. You could either sample the original analogue waveform at the wrong moment in time, in which case you measure the wrong amplitude, or you can have a perfectly sampled signal but reproduce those samples at the wrong time, in which case, again, you reproduce the amplitude incorrectly on the waveform. So in both cases, you end up with a distorted waveform. But I think it's also true that once a signal is in the digital domain, then jitter between different devices doesn't really have any effect unless it's so severe that you actually start to miss out samples. Yeah, that's right. So if you're connecting something, for instance, from uh, your computer door into a hardware recorder or you're sending something out to an external digital processor like a reverb or something, then that's just passing digital data backwards and forwards. And in that context, the timing information is actually completely irrelevant because you're just passing numbers around. Uh, It's only when you're converting from analog to digital or from digital to analog that sampling becomes absolutely critical uh, in terms of its timing. Uh, And the, the thing about jitter is that if the variations are random, then the errors will be random. And as we all know, a random sound is basically noise. So what jitter would produce in that context is noise. And it's likely to get worse with high frequency audio signals because that changes more quickly. So essentially, you end up with a high frequency hiss. And that's that's fairly benign. And that wouldn't really be a huge problem. Where jitter does become a serious problem is where the variations have a periodic nature to them, a cyclical nature. And that's actually very common because there are lots of different clocking signals flying around inside most digital boxes, most converters, and they can interfere with each other and cause cross-modulations and all sorts of nasty things inside the circuitry. And in that case, what you end up with are distinct tonal artefacts, harmonics, whistles, 
drones, tones. I mean, they're all going to be very low level. They're all going to be very close to the noise floor, if not in the noise floor, but they can be audible and they can cause a kind of distortion, which some people do pick up on. So this would almost be like a mild aliasing effect. Yes, it does sound a little bit like aliasing because there's no mathematical relationship between the jitter clock artefacts and the audio signal itself. So they, they do tend to sound quite atonal. So low jitter, good thing. Absolutely. The other common question we get when we're going to colleges or anywhere where we get live questions, in fact, is should I buy a Mac or a PC to make my music? Now, of course, those of us who have Macintosh computers would say, yes, of course, you have to have them. But the reality is, I think, um, somewhat different here. Yeah, I think actually computer is is just a tool, really. It's just a, a machine that allows you to do something creative. And I think actually what's much more important is choosing a software application that enables you to work in a way that that you feel comfortable with and that you can work quickly and and efficiently. Uh, So I think it's actually more important to choose that application, whether it be Cubase or Nuendo or Logic or Pro Tools or whatever program you want to use. Make that decision first, and when you're happy with that, then you can buy a computer system to run it efficiently. Of course, some software only runs on one platform or the other, so the decision's made for you. But uh, quite a lot of software now is also cross-platform, Cubase, for example. So then how do you go about choosing? Well, I think it partly comes down to budget at that point, personal preferences. I think it's pretty well known that PCs tend to be a little bit more tweaky and hands-on. Macs tend to be a little bit more switch it on and forget about it. The big advantage with Macs, of course, is that the company control the hardware that's involved. So there are very few variations on a theme and that makes them pretty reliable and pretty stable. On the PC side of things, everybody and their dog make sound cards, make video cards, make motherboards. And there's a lot of compatibility issues that are very easy to fall foul of, particularly if you want to start building your own PCs. So although the cost initially might appear to be cheaper with a PC, actually, by the time you've bought a decent system and bought all the components to work nicely together, you may well find yourself spending the same kind of money as you would on a Mac anyway. So the safest option with a PC would be to buy one that is put together specifically for music, really? Yeah, I think so. Or at the very least, take a look at the companies that do specialise in music PCs, see what components they're using, and then uh, match those kind of facilities. But ideally, go to a specialist because there's so much detailed knowledge required to make a really stable, solid system that uh, it's worth the investment. I think that's good advice because some PCs are optimised for playing games, which means there's a lot of uh, emphasis placed on the video side of the thing, lots of intensive video processing, and that can sometimes steal power away from the audio side. Absolutely. And I think this is where something like the Sound on Sound forum comes in. Um, and of course, things like the PC notes columns in the magazine, because there's an awful lot of experienced people that can help guide you in the right direction if you are interested in setting up your own PC based system. Uh, and the same is true for Mac, actually. I mean, there are ways of, of optimizing Mac systems to, to get the best out of them, uh, make them as efficient as they, as they need to be. So yeah, take a look at our forums for, for some good advice. Thanks, Hugh. If you'd like to ask us any questions to answer in these podcasts, then there's several ways you can do it. You can leave a comment on our Facebook page, Sound on Sound Facebook page. You can send us a tweet to at SOS Publications, or you can email us at podcast at soundonsound.com. And did I remember to tell you that the producer's manual by Paul White makes an excellent stocking filler for Christmas? <laughs> That's definitely a plug. It's a socket. <laughs> socket to them. Well, that's about all we have time for this month, so it's goodbye from me, Paul White, and it's goodbye from Hugh. Goodbye, thanks for listening. Talk to you next month. Have a good Christmas. (laughs) 